0: I just find it weird when I have a situation like today where I've got an episode that clearly has some deeper meaning and some excellent presentation. It's a generally good episode. And yet, for some reason, all they have from a behind-the-scenes perspective is from someone who literally had three scenes in the entire episode. (laughs) Everyone's talking about Worf for some reason. Look, I like Worf too, but come on. Um... I do want to give credit to Dorn. He manages to add a decent amount of complexity and subtlety to an otherwise fairly straight, you know, presentation, or not presentation, but dialogue. You know, he, he takes the role and he adds some nuance to it. And of course, LeVar Burton is amazing in this episode. So they start off, and it's like, oh my God, you recognize that? Yes, sir. Romulan. Dun, dun, dun. Once again, we get a lot of good exposition in the teaser. We establish a lot of things very quickly and efficiently. This is in Federation space, right? Distress call, very dangerous area, temporary window for beaming, um, sensors aren't working properly because of how messed up the storm is, all that fun stuff. And that someone getting trapped here is legitimately dangerous. Now, I don't know if you guys care to do this, but I actually physically did this, and I want you to do it too, if you care. I want you to watch some of the beginning of the episode, like when they're walking around on Galorden Core, okay? Then I want you to go pull up the last outpost and skip towards, like, the last 20, 15 or so minutes of the episode. I don't remember timestamp, forgive me. And look at the dangerous, terrifying planet that they're on in that episode. I just mentioned this because, obviously, that's not a fair comparison. But this is still getting across the point of something I've talked about, I think, like three or four times now that season three is making a concerted effort to be better. Just better across the board. Better presentation, better execution, uh, better effects. You know, obviously some of this is because they had a better budget. But at the same time, even as of season three, their budget wasn't that great. It wouldn't, in fact, be until season four when TNG would finally have, you know, executive approval to start really stretching with their budget. Um, so even here, it's not just a money issue, but they put a lot of time and effort into really making this place look as dangerous and terrifying as possible, so that when the teaser ends, we believe someone getting stuck there is a problem, right, like that is a serious issue and a serious threat, and they do several other things in the episode to establish this as well, the fact that they literally have only windows with which to beam up and down, And the fact that they're having trouble even scanning properly through there because of how much it's distorting their signal. That's great. And it helps to set up the dilemma very well. Because the dilemma is not just, you know, there's Geordi. The dilemma is, we found a Romulan on a planet in our borders, in the Federation side of the line. And Geordi's down there. And those two plots dovetail each other perfectly throughout the episode. It goes without saying that this episode was in many ways inspired by the Cold War. The Soviet Union and the United States of America and everything in between, and there was a lot in between those. That was a massive, convoluted, messy situation that boiled down to two powers who were terrified of each other for good reason, even though they had no reason to be that way. Which I know sounds contradictory, but anybody who has studied the Cold War knows what I'm talking about. And... I really feel like that part of the episode is a part that <sighs> succeeds in spite of itself. I'll talk more about that. Let's 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 rewind actually a moment. Uh, let's talk about how. Let's talk about Jordy for a moment. Let's talk about Jordy's side of things because there's really the three plots going through here. They're all so tightly connected. I wouldn't blame you for not separating them. But there's the wharf plot the Geordi plot, and the Picard plot. That's, that's the three main thrusts of the episode. So they beam up the Romulan, you know, he's, why, why didn't they just beam him to sick, eh. Anyways, they, they bring up the bed, they talk about how they can't go down, and that leads us to Geordi, who's down there. One of the things I like that when Star Trek does, and season three is actually really good about this in general, is when they use things logically to do things and present dilemmas and solutions to those dilemmas. Now, that may sound like a duh to you, but how many times have you seen in Star Trek, you know, in the future of Star Trek, an issue where the problem is Technobabble and the solution is Technobabble, right? Whereas on this planet, you could argue Technobabble's involved here, but by my own definition, it is not. The problem with this planet is it is covered by an overwhelmingly dangerous storm. That's not hard to imagine. Just think about Jupiter. So... <laughs> you know, we've got this whole horrific, deadly storm, which is preventing most of our technology from working properly. We have a couple of windows of opportunity, and we're going to try and use neutrinos to to beam a beam down as like a beacon to get Jordy back to the spot. All of this is, makes sense and follows actual logic and science. Neutrinos can go through solid freaking lead, for God's sakes. I think they could get through this storm, right? Although, I wonder why Wesley is the one who picks up on that. you notice even Jordy is like, thank you, Wesley. It's like he just knew. He just knew Wes was going to be the one to figure that out anyways. So, all of this makes sense. None of this is Technobabble. And then the solutions that are, are designed are also not Technobabble. The first solution that's designed is the spikes. Jordy looks, so Jordy's down here. He's like, all right, he tries yelling several times. Gives up on that. I'm sorry. All right, I need to dig my way out of this pit. So he looks around. He finds several little rocks, digs a hole out of the mud, puts the rocks in, uses his phaser to melt them into spikes, which he can use to crawl up. That's great. That's actually using your situation and your circumstances to devise a solution, not saying, "Hmm, I wonder if I could bounce a paralon deflector, an uh, anti-graviton beam across this in order to send a signal up so that I could beam myself to the surface." <laughs> I'm actually pretty bad at devising babble, but you get my point. So we have real dilemmas and real solutions. This is throughout the whole episode, actually. Um, the idea that the, the messed up nature of the storm is slowly breaking down their bodies and their systems adds just another layer to the tension and the, the threat that this planet possesses, which is something, as I mentioned, they've already established. So the idea that this is literally making it so that Geordi is functionally blind after a while makes sense. And it's also killing the Romulan, just in a different way, which also makes sense. They're different people under different circumstances. I'm with it. I'm completely with it. Even their final solution for finding it is trying to you know, interface the visor, which can see the neutrinos, with the tricorder makes sense. It's using existing tools in logical ways to produce a solution. The episode is even great because you can't bean through the shields. And I know that sounds like a really weird thing to comment on, but do you know how often it bugs me when you can when you just casually can beam through the shields? I know, I know I've brought this up over on Voyager especially cuz Voyager just does whatever with this rules at least in the first few seasons. Um but this episodes like this are one of the reasons why the whole you can just beam through the shields thing aggravates the crap out of me. It is a major plot point in this episode that they cannot beam them up through the shields. That's one of the primary forces of tension in the climactic finale. The whole point is that he has to lower his shields as a gesture of good faith versus an enemy who has a warship with weapons charged and locked on them. And he still has to lower those shields to beam them up. If they could just beam through the shields, that just goes away. Anyway, so Jordy's down there. He's like, yeah, he gets the spikes. And then he meets Mr. Bakra. I want to give super credit to John Snyder. He actually hasn't done a lot of Star Trek work. He'll play... A very boring character later on in Star Trek. We'll get there when we get there. But I think he does a good job with Bakra, Because he has to portray three separate things in this episode. And I I personally think he hits all three well. The first thing he has to portray is the party line. "Mm, I am a Romulan star empire and the Romulans will conquer the galaxy and we are strong. And it is inevitable I would gladly die for the glory of the empire because that's probably what he usually thinks on an everyday basis. As the episode goes on, his weakness, the, the tumult of the storm, and his rapport with Jory slowly breaks that down until we start seeing the person underneath that. And this is the second thing he has to portray. He has to portray someone who is different from Jory; Otherwise, he'd just be another human. He portrays a Romulan, and he does a decent job of it. Probably my favorite little tidbit is where he expresses legitimate shock at the idea that his parents didn't kill Jordy when he was born because he was born blind. Like, just, why would anyone do that? It feels like such a waste. And the third thing he has to portray is someone who, despite differences, nevertheless has a common goal. The What I usually mentally think of as the Mass Effect effect. The idea of, yeah, you're a Quarian and you're a Krogan and you're a human... And we're different, and that's fine, but we can still be united, even though we are different. And that's the third aspect he has portrayed. portray. he does a good job with all three of these, like I said. Geordi just kind of establishes a natural rapport with him. <laughs> I never lie, with, with sand in my boots, Commodore. I love that line. There's a lot of good lines in this one. Um, in fact, later on, if you notice, there's this bit where he finally gets down, and he, he's under the gun again, and he Pulls out his boot. There is, in fact, a lot of sand in his boot, so go figure. I actually feel really bad for LeVar Burton. He had to have been very uncomfortable and very awkward in, in a literal muddy suit with sand and grime and dirt. And He does a great job, despite all those conditions. So, absolutely huge props to LeVar Burton. Speaking of which, Burton has to portray basically two separate characters. Himself and himself. Let me explain. I When I look at this episode, what I think is that this is just Geordie being Geordie. But the weird thing is, we haven't really had a lot of episodes really focusing on Geordie. We had Booby Trap recently, but not a lot of other episodes have really dug into the character. I could be wrong, and please feel free to correct me, but I feel like this is one of the first episodes that really helps to establish Geordie, who Geordi is and will be for the next four years. He is just generally kind of a nice guy who just kind of gets along with everyone and he he gets that across burton gets that across wonderfully in his performance uh, even though he is basically facing an enemy who literally has him at gunpoint he still he can't leave him to die and he's still sta- he still uh, he he treats him like another person basically i know that's a weird thing to say but it's the kind of thing you wouldn't see from every character but you would naturally from jordy not as a deliberate intent but just because that's who jordy is Which brings me to my next point. Burton also has to portray Jordy when he's at his worst. We've already seen several times, actually, that the visor is a very important aspect to him and his character. In fact, there was going to be that aborted arc in Season 2 about getting rid of the visor. And even in the... I, I know, obviously, that was an aborted arc, and therefore it doesn't quite matter, but the significant part here is the idea that as a setup to that, they established how important his visor really is to him. And this was this is there's several scenes of this in season one and several in season two. It's not hard to understand that kind of bitterness if you yourself have ever been crippled temporarily or otherwise. I have, you know, my leg, which a lot of people know about. You know, I spent several months in a wheelchair and then several months after that on crutches. I still have those crutches right there, in case I ever need them, because every now and again I do. It's not common, but it happens. You can understand that bitterness when something that you normally rely on is just gone, and you no longer have that. Because if you pay attention to his demeanor after his visor finally stops working, he, he's just despondent. He no longer even has the urge to try until Bakra basically shoves and pushes him verbally in order to do so, until they finally come up with this idea of, okay, we'll go ahead and interface the tricorder with the visor. We'll make this work. We'll make this happen. And then he goes back to basically being himself again. There's a great line, by the way, and it's a very understated line, but it's massively important. There's a bit where they beam Bakra and Geordie to the bridge. Now, Picard did that for very good reason, and I'll cover the political side of the story in a minute. But they beam them to the bridge, and Bakra immediately was like, oh crap. Picard says, you know, you are, a, you know, no harm will come to you. And Geordie steps in and very authoritatively, just authoritatively? very strongly states, you got my personal guarantee on that. And just the way he says that, you can just feel that, no, really, whatever else is going on, you are not hurting this man right now. That is not happening. And I like that because, again, very Jordy. And it does also help Bakker to, to chill a little bit because, you know, you can see he's just like, oh, crap. <laughs> um, there's a bit later on... Where they're, they're trying to figure out what's going on. You know, his, his visor's kind of falling apart and Jordy's talking through to Bakra. And after a while, Jordy finally says, yeah, okay, I get you. And then there's this hesitation and Jordy doesn't even ask, but Bakra says, I have no more wish to die than you do. It's a nice little bit. It's, it's like I said, when the, when the Romulan starts to peek out from the Romulan party line, uh, in his dialogue. And I like that little tidbit. What in the world? Ah, okay. Sorry. I just got an email from my bank, and I was wondering what in the world. It's nothing important. Don't worry. The Romulan starts to peek out, and Geordi uses probably the best possible tactic he could to convince Bakra to coordinate with him, because he doesn't try to convince him. He just says... I understand wanting to die for principles because Jordy would die for his principles. If Jordy was ordered to go into a deadly situation to save the Enterprise, you bet your ass he would. I mean, even Troy learned that one eventually, right? So Jordy understands that. It's that same goal, same motivation thing, similarities despite being different. So then Jordy asks him point blank, is. This, one of those times where it is worth dying for your principles. And Bakra lowers his gun. It's the perfect way to convince him by basically asking him the only question that matters in this circumstance. Everything else can wait till after. Right now, we are literally dying. (laughs) It's a great moment. It's a great moment. So, let's shift to talk about Worf. Worf, of course, is the one everyone wants to talk about because Worf lets the Romulan die rather than save him. I've heard a lot of arguments about that point over the years. Like, a lot. In fact, people were arguing about that when this episode was first being introduced. Dorn himself argued about it originally. The producers argued about it originally. The fans argued about it originally. There were tons of argument, And I would love, as always, to hear your guys' thoughts on this. But I'm also going to give my own thoughts, because that's kind of a job. I like the fact that Worf let him die, but not... Not in a vacuum. I want to kind of explain what I mean by that. So, Worf only has three real scenes in this episode. His plot only has three scenes. First, he interacts with Crusher, and then Riker, and then Picard. Each one is about the dying Romulan. And technically, there's also the one where he interacts with the dying Romulan. So I suppose we could stretch this to four, but he goes literally straight from Riker to the dying Romulan. So, he talks to Crusher, and of course, she's just like, oh, this is amazing. Ah, oh, thank God, we found a cure. What, do you have a problem with... He's going to die if... Worf basically just says, no, I can't do this, and declines. And of course, Crusher can't force him. I mean, she probably could if she really wanted to, but she has no interest in de- or desire to do so, so she's just kind of like, uh, okay, I'm not sure what to do about this. Um... I I guess I'll just kind of keep thinking about this and work on something else, right? Crusher tries to appeal to him from a moralistic, an emotional perspective. This is someone who is dying. You have it in your power to save them. Very simple. Now, later on, Worf goes to Riker. And Riker and Worf have a wonderful conversation. Dorn nails all of the points he needs to. There's this great part. Where riker says you know do you do you blame all romulans for this or something along those lines and worf responds very quickly and forcefully yes just bam and then riker says well what about in the future what about in generations from now and then worf is a lot more hesitant and in fact doesn't answer that question he can't answer that question we can see the dynamic, the, the, the struggle inside Worf kind of developing over the course of this. Because Riker doesn't try an emotional argument, he tries an intellectual argument. He tries to state the very simple concept of, are you going to forever blame all Romulans for what happened to you? Note that Riker at no point tries to ignore or even whitewash what happened to Worf. That was a terrible thing. But Riker points out very correctly and factually that Romulan did not kill your parents. How many other Romulans are you going to hate because of the ones who killed yours? Because Worf sits very firmly behind line mentality, even though he can see the fallacy in line mentality. Then he goes to Picard. This is great, because Picard argues the political and command ramifications, the concepts of responsibility and duty in the matter. The idea that this is a dying Romulan on a Federation ship while a Romulan warbird is coming. What do we do? (laughs) This is a very dangerous and horrifying situation. And yet, interestingly enough, Picard refuses to order Worf to do this. This is where things get interesting. Rewind a bit. Back during the conversation with Worf and Riker, Worf flat out says, so you think I should do this? Or you believe I should do this? And then Riker says, "What I believe doesn't matter. This is on you. But I point that out because Worf seemed so eager for the excuse. Worf does not want to do this transfusion. That much is obvious. But you can tell, and again, credit to the performance. David Carson also gets some credit here. He was the director. He's another decent director who does a lot of good stuff over the years. (laughs) A lot of good directors in Star Trek. Not, not, not... All of them are great, but there's a lot of good ones. Anyways. So, you know, you could see in that performance, you could see in, in Doran's performance of Worf, he wants Riker to basically give him the, the excuse to just go do this, even though he desperately doesn't want to. And then when he, the dynamic between him and, him and Picard is fantastic, Picard is literally begging him, please volunteer for this, because Picard does not want to order a member of his crew to do something they firmly and centrally disagree with. Like, it's hard to even come up with a real-life example of this um, without getting into controversial topics. But you know, if, if you—we'll use a made-up controversial topic. Let's say you really, really care about apples, and you hate oranges. Like, you despise them. The very idea of oranges is just morally repugnant to you. But then weird circumstances happen where you have to eat an orange, and people will die, and this will be a horrible situation. It might even start a war but you still can't just bring yourself to volunteer eating that orange because it is so morally repugnant to you, right? As Picard, then, in that situation, he does not want to order Worf to eat an orange because he understands that. He respects that. In fact, at the end of the scene, if you'll notice, Picard thought it says, Lieutenant. And Worf straightens up. He's like, all right, I'm ready. I'm ready for the order. And then Picard says, that will be all. And you could just see Worf's face just like, Okay. And the funny thing is, Worf doesn't seem that relieved per se. Because, if you're paying attention, Worf is practically begging to be ordered to do this. He does understand the circumstances. He understands how important this is to to the Federation and for simple obligations. He understands intellectually. He gets it all. And so if Picard just says, I order you to do this, all of his internal squabbles goes away. I'm doing this horrible thing for the right and honorable reason, because I am following my commander. But Picard doesn't give him that order, and so Worf doesn't have that excuse. It's a great dynamic. It was also too late, from what we understand, because literally seconds later, Picard's like, Crusher, stop bothering him. And then Crusher says, yeah, he's dead. And that brings us to the political side of things. First of all, it was a treat to see Andreas Katsulas again, because he's awesome. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. I always have trouble with his name. For those of you not aware, he played Jakar over on Babylon 5. He's done actually several roles over the years. He's usually well known for playing the guy who is the bad guy. Usually a very typical Type 3 villain. Slee- kind of sleazy and finagling. And, oh no, I had no idea that we had two shi- two people on the ship. I was just misinformed, right? And that partially adds to the episode, but I don't think it was on purpose. We will actually be seeing Tomaloc a few more times throughout the series. If anything, I wish we saw more of him. I wish we had more recurring villains in TNG. I know that sounds weird, but I really do, because we don't really have a lot of recurring villains in TNG. We have Q, arguably. We've got Lore, who shows up, what, three times? We've got Tomalak, who shows up four times. And we've got Sila, who shows up twice. Art, well, that's not true. She actually shows up three times, but you get my point. That's it! I mean, right? <laughs> that's, unless you count Gawron, which I don't. Or the Dura sisters would show up, what, twice? So, this is... It, it probably... I'm admittedly a little biased here, because I really like uh, Katsulas. And I kind of like Tomalak as a character. Tomalak isn't a typical Type 3 villain in this case. He is certainly portrayed as one. But over the course of the episodes as we interact with him, we learn that this is someone who has more to him than just being a slime ball. And, I mean, I I honestly credit a lot of that to the actor. But I also want to say, this is when I say this episode succeeds despite itself. In my opinion, this episode was clearly written so that the Federation of the Good Guys... The Romulans are the bad guys. I have several points of evidence for this. Uh, First and foremost, the Federation goes way out of the way to try and save the dying Romulan, and the dying Romulan literally tries to attack us and spit in our face for doing so. Second of all, Bakra took forever to finally come around to the idea of cooperation, whereas Geordi was in favor of it initially, and finally, the fact that it is Picard who does the first measure of trust, not Tomaloc. And Tomaloc is, of course, the one who violates the treaty, whereas Picard does not. Having said all that, even though it was or intent, I don't agree with it. Because I'm a weirdo, and I think unintentionally they have come up with a far more nuanced situation than previously indicated. Because this is a Cold War allegory, and it's actually really easy to see everyone's perspectives on this one. Riker flat-out mentions and Korra could be a launch on point for a new invasion, a new military incursion. And yet, based on this, this is admittedly kind of cheating, but based on everything we learn in the future, the Romulans are not actually gearing for military action. They're not actually preparing for a new wave of war against the Federation, at least not so overtly but they are very interested in keeping tabs on us and doing everything they can to learn about us within the lines of justification. Defector is an excellent example of this. So what I'm trying to say is that, from my perspective, this is a spy operation. They sent some rivalants here to keep tabs on the Federation. This may sound like a controversial opinion, but it is my opinion that, politically speaking, espionage efforts are mandatory for maintaining peace. And I know I'm not alone in that thought. I imagine there's several people who will disagree with that thought. And that's fine, of course. But if we take this from a more measured and moderate perspective, we could see the Romulans were doing this incredibly dangerous, literally illegal mission to invade Federation territory to spy on us very seriously. It's why they insist there was only one Romulan. It's why they insist that this was a mistake. It's why they are do everything that they can in order to try and get this situation dealt with. There's... It's so easy to see the mutual distrust here. Now, we know that Picard basically tells the truth the entire time because we have the advantage of seeing Picard's side of the, of the, of the situation. We also know that Tomalog lies because we also see the lie in his situation but I want you to put yourselves in the Romulan military's shoes for a moment. The Federation has been expanding almost non-stop for quite a while now, and is at a point where they are at peace with the Klingons, and are at peace with the Cardassians, and the Zinkethi, and basically everyone, and are doing this whole unchecked thing. The Romulans are obviously afraid of the Federation, and to be blunt, rightly so. In fact, my best point of evidence for, for to showcase how afraid the Romulans are of the Federation is their propaganda stating that they are not. That there is a certainty that they will conquer the whole galaxy and the Romulan Star Empire will reign supreme. It is my opinion that that is being stated because the upper echelons of the Senate and the, the Pro Council and all that are legitimately terrified of what's going on in the rest of the galaxy. That they are getting... Managed into a corner by means they don't really have the ability to fight back against. Why do you think the Romulans don't go to all out war with the Federation? It's because they don't think they could win that. And I agree. I don't think the Romulan Star Empire could take on the Klingons and the Federation. I think they'd be pulverized in that fight, even now. Especially since that would galvanize the Federation into advancing their military career or military ex- uh, expeditions. Which is funny because if you're paying attention, they've already started doing that because of the Borg. So, they need information and possibly sabotage. I don't want to paint them in a completely new, you know, positive light. That's not the idea here. The idea is understanding. It's entirely possible this mission to Galarndon Corps or elsewhere was not just for observation, but for sabotage, to prevent the Federation from spying on them, or to you know, take on maybe some colony ships, or maybe to destroy some factories, or otherwise to do something to hamper the Federation's capacity to wage war. Now, that is not a good thing. In fact, that would be considered an act of war. And if so, that would explain why someone like Tomlock would be so insistent on dealing with this situation, even to the point of being willing to cross the border and being willing to fight a Federation starship in Federation territory. Because they are that terrified of this situation, of, of this information getting out. Remember, they only have Picard say so that they have gained no information on this. And Picard, several times, calls them out on lies with information he has. It is not beyond believability to presume that the Romulans are thinking, okay, they know. They know. They know. What do we do? Right? right. It's also interesting because Tomaloc's perspective makes sense even from a moralistic ideal. My men are on your ship. We have the medical technology to save them. Like, even if we ignore the the spy operation, even if we ignore the sabotage operation, that could be someone that matters to them. Maybe they care about other people. Or maybe he's someone who's politically connected. Or maybe he's someone who's personally connected, has some family in the right places. Either way, it is not beyond uh, the ideal to... It's not beyond um, believability to say that that Romulan, the second... I don't remember his name, not Bakra, the other one. Uh, is somewhat important to the Romulan people, or Tomalak himself, or their ship, or whatever. I mean, maybe he's an agent of the Tal Shiar, I don't know. So the idea of, we need to get him back, we need to save his life, could be important enough in order to justify this whole thing. It's even possible that he was on a spy mission, which is considered high enough profile in order to mandate the possibility of declaring war over it. That's not hard to believe. We've had that happen in real life. Mostly over nuclear weapons, but the point remains. So, Picard's refusal to let them cross the neutral zone to meet them presented a very serious problem for the Romulans. And that is on Picard, I want to stress that. Because the distrust goes both ways they have no reason to believe the romulans they're almost certain the romulans have lied to them and this is an incursion by the romulans but once that incursion has been made now we have to deal with the consequences of that i also i also very much enjoy the idea of the dynamic between the political and the personal The political side of this is incredibly charged. As Picard says towards the end, they came extremely close to war with the Romulans here. This was a very serious, very deadly situation. This is practically Berlin all over again, and some of you know what I mean by that. Um, And it was basically a degree of luck and basic decency that allowed it to not go that way. And I point that out because... If Tomaloc was not willing to, if Picard was not willing to trust Tomaloc, and if Tomaloc was not willing to honor that trust, then this would have gone very badly very quickly. Keep in mind everything I said earlier about how important it is to get this guy back and how important the situation is, and their willingness to literally start a war over this, and yet despite all of that, the Warbirds still did not open fire on the Enterprise when they could have. Now that right there helps add some of the nuance to Tomalak, in my opinion. Because if he was just a slimy snake, he would have opened fire. No question. It was even a justified action, politically speaking. You were holding some of our people prisoner. Our Romulan officer died in Federation custody. That is literally justification for war right there. It doesn't take much. Not when you're already right at the edge. So... Tomalak deciding not to do that shows that he doesn't just care about the war or that he has more interest in more details than simply taking down the Enterprise, that he is not merely a bad guy, that there's something to him other than muah mustache twirl, which has helped because of the dynamic between Geordi and Bakra. Bakra comes up, you know, first thing he says, I have not told him anything. Second thing he says, I am alive because of this human. And like, okay, you're going to return him, right? (laughs) Maybe that agent had information that was important, like I said. Or maybe they just really wanted to get him back. I don't know. I really don't know. And that's the point. And that's why I credit this episode and why I think it succeeds even though it shouldn't have. Because I think that most of the, the, the mindset, the personality, the perspectives that's going on on the Romulan side of things was deliberately left not there because there was no need to. The Romulans are the bad guys and the Federation are the good guys. Duh, right? So we show everything on the Federation side and nothing on the Romulans' side, and that way we know who's the good guys. But I think it succeeds because that is a Cold War, and it's right there. Not knowing what's going on in the heads of the other guys. That's why that fear ran so rampant in real life. In the Cold War, as well as other Cold Wars throughout history, there's been others, I think that that helps add to the paranoia of the moment, because we don't know what's going on in Tomalak's head. We don't know what's going on in dying Romulan's head, and we don't know what's going on in Bakra's head. We only see the the Federation side of things. And so we're allowed to be paranoid and afraid, just like the characters are. it's not obvious, I really liked this episode, and I hope you have enjoyed my thoughts on it. And I'll see you guys next time.